We continue our series that we started some weeks back entitled Solomon and the Queen. And our text has been 1 Kings chapter 10, the first 13 verses. To those of you that have been with us through this series, these verses will seem repetitious, obviously. We pray not redundant, but necessary. And again, we read them each time, even though it takes a little time, and we've read them numerous times before, because we never know with the audio or video that we put out there who will be picking up for the first time and they may not start at number one they may pick up anywhere so we read the text each time therefore first kings chapter 10 and verse 1 and when the queen of sheba heard the fame of solomon concerning the name of the lord she came to prove him with hard questions and she came to jerusalem with a very great train with camels that bear spices and very much gold and precious stones, and when she was come to Solomon, she communed with him of all that was in her heart. And Solomon told her all her questions. There was not anything hid from the king which he told her not. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all Solomon's wisdom in the house that he had built, and the meat of his table, and the sitting of his servants, and the attendance of his ministers, and their apparel and his cupbearers and his ascent by which he went up unto the house of the Lord, there was no more spirit in her. And she said to the king, It was a true report that I heard in mine own land of thy acts and of thy wisdom. Howbeit I believed not the words until I came, and mine eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. Thy wisdom and prosperity exceedeth the fame which I heard. Happy are thy men, happy are these thy servants which stand continually before thee and that hear thy wisdom. Blessed be the Lord thy God which delighteth in thee to set thee on the throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel forever. Therefore made he thee king to do judgment and justice. And she gave the king an hundred and twenty talents of gold and of spices, very great store, and precious stones. There came no more such abundance of spices as these which the queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. And the navy also of Hiram that brought gold from Ophir, brought in from Ophir great plenty of almug trees and precious stones. And the king made of the almug trees pillars for the house of the Lord, and for the king's house, harps also and psalteries for singers. There came no such almond trees, nor were seen unto this day. And King Solomon gave unto the queen of Sheba all her desire, and whatsoever she asked beside that which Solomon gave her of his royal bounty. So she turned and went to her own country, she and her servants. And we'll just remind you for uh, the sake of those that uh, may have forgotten or are tuning in to this for the first time or hearing it for the first time, that we're looking at this relationship between Solomon and the queen here in the form of what we have referred to as a similitude. And Hosea mentions similitude. John Bunyan in his writings wrote his allegories based upon that text of Scripture in Hosea of I will speak to them in similitudes. And we have conveniently defined a similitude for you, not to be, it doesn't have to be an allegory, it can be an allegory, but a comparative resemblance. 
And if you think of a similitude as a comparative resemblance, you will have a very accurate definition. Other things you may have heard said, which were in reality similitudes, is when you hear a teacher or a preacher say something to this effect, that the types and shadows of the Old Testament are types and shadows of Christ and things like that. And indeed they are. They are not the real thing, but they are types and shadows, as a shadow is not the real person. But again, they are comparative resemblances. And of course, the New Testament is very small, and the information we have concerning of our Lord and Savior and what He did is very brief there. The doctrines are tremendous and inexhaustible. And of course, if it were all written, we'd have more than we could comprehend. We already do. As John said, the world couldn't contain all the books. But again, the New Testament unlocks the old for us. A lot of people don't even know that Christ is in the, New, in the Old Testament. That's a shame. But Jesus preaching to the two Emmaus Road disciples said, and He began to speak to them concerning Himself, beginning at Moses and the prophets. So by the New Testament, we look into the Old Testament and see the comparative resemblance or similitudes that are throughout that teach us about Christ what the New Testament does not tell us. It fills in the blanks, so to speak. So in this narrative here that we have read and the relationship of Solomon and the queen, what we are looking at in similitude is Solomon as Christ and the queen of Sheba as sinners such as you and I. And the real basis for this that puts it all together and legitimizes what we're doing is the words of Christ himself in Matthew 12 and 42 where he said during his lifetime that the queen of Sheba would rise up in judgment against the generation in which he lived because she came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and then Jesus said but I say unto you a greater than Solomon is here he was speaking of himself so again just think about it Jesus words were a greater than Solomon is here referring to himself so how are you going to know what he's talking about greater than unless you know who he was talking about with Solomon. So we've looked at Solomon as that type, shadow, or similitude of Christ. Traits, characteristics, blessings, gifts, what have you. And summary we say to you again because this is our last message on Solomon. We're going to the queen next week, Lord willing. But again, Solomon was the greatest king Israel ever had. Solomon had that gift of wisdom and understanding unique to an individual that nobody else has ever had or ever will. He had a kingdom that has surpassed 
from what we know of it, all other kingdoms. I'm not talking about greatness, numbers of people, the most gold, any of that. I'm talking about it had a man sitting at the top that possessed more wisdom than everybody else put together. Okay, So the kingdom was made not in dollars to be great or numbers of people, but by the king who administered and ruled over it. So likewise the kingdom of Christ, according to Daniel's prophecy and according to the other writings of the New and Old Testament, will be a literal kingdom on this earth that will surpass anything there's ever been on this earth. In fact, it will surpass all other kingdoms. So we've looked at all of these things concerning his humility and his wisdom and his officers and his kingdoms and he built the Lord's house and he dedicated that house and the prayer he offered up of intercession and Christ's prayer of intersection and, and all these things. And the last two things we want to look at today is the great sacrifices that Solomon made in accompaniment with bringing the ark to the temple when it was completed and in the dedication of the temple. So we'll see a similitude there concerning the sacrifices. So to begin there, let's go back a page or two in your Bible to the 8th chapter, which we've referred to a lot in this study, of Solomon when he was going to bring the ark to the finished temple. And this is in verse 5 where this actually takes place, the sacrifices. But let's begin back in verse 3. It says, And all the elders of Israel came, and the priests took up the ark, and they brought up the ark of the Lord, and the tabernacle of the congregation, and all the holy vessels that were in the tabernacle, even those did the priests and the Levites bring. And King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel that were assembled unto him, were with him before the ark, sacrificing sheep and oxen that could not be told nor number for multitude. We won't go ahead and read, but I'll summarize. We've read some of the, the verses that come a few verses later. They brought the ark into the temple that Solomon had built, and the Lord descended upon that, and a cloud filled the temple so that the priest couldn't even minister, showing not only God's presence, but God's blessing there. Okay, But the point we're looking at is the sacrificing. And here we're just simply told a general statement here that as they were transporting and bringing the ark, they didn't just go get it and pack it right in there and set her down like a piece of furniture, like when we move something. No, the ark was very special. It always had been, you know, for many reasons, which we won't have time to go into here. But the very fact that they were moving it, transporting it, it was a sacred thing going to a sacred place. Therefore, sacrifices needed to be made unto God. God must be pleased and find these things acceptable. And you know some of the stories of the ark before, right? I mean, remember when the Philistines got a hold of it, it wasn't a blessing to them. Uh, when uh, David went to get it from the house of that individual, his place was greatly blessed by its presence. So the presence of that ark carried a lot of weight. So it just says sacrificing sheep and oxen that could not be told nor numbered for multitude. Now I don't think any of us comprehend that. Uh, and if 
If you think you comprehend that, I'm going to lay something else on you in just a minute that I can assure you, you will not comprehend about this sacrificing process. Again, we don't comprehend because we've never seen anything like it, nor participated in it, the sacrifices that took place in the Old Testament under the Mosaic ceremonial law. By the time it got to the New Testament, again, think about it, there was always a lamb of a morning and an evening, two a day, every day. Well, that's not a big deal. A lamb's not a very big animal. You know, man take care of those pretty quick, pretty easy, what have you. But when you're talking about oxen and bullocks and maybe full-grown sheep, goats, heifers, and other thing, anybody that's ever butchered anything, this is overwhelming. And think again, we live in a day of winches and nice knives and all kinds of niceties, I'll say, in order to carry out a butcher process, but it's still a lot of work. They had none of that. Where they killed it's where it was going to be. And you've got to deal with it then. And so, this is big. This is just transporting the ark. You might remember it now, David did the same thing, and we'll just briefly look at this. In 2 Samuel chapter 6, Verse 12 through 13, and here I can tell you the name of the man uh, uh, when uh, he brought the ark from the house of Obedidim was his name. And in verse 12 and 13 there, David is told how God has blessed this man's house because of the presence of the ark of God. And David goes and gets the ark to bring it up into the city of David or Jerusalem with gladness. It says in verse 13, and it was so that when they had, when they had, that bear the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, he sacrificed oxen and fatlings. It doesn't say how much. Now I can't tell you, and I didn't look it up or try to figure it out. I don't think it's even pertinent of whether it was a mile, two miles, or whatever it was from where this man lived to Jerusalem, or even if he lived outside of the wall. Six paces is approximately a you know a three foot eighteen feet. They stopped and sacrificed something. They went eighteen feet and sacrificed. I mean, again, nobody that's never butchered anything can comprehend what that involves. But this is the dedication they have to the sacredness, not only of the ark, but what they were doing to transport it. And they did it with reverence and they did it with fear. Because you get it wrong, you don't get a second chance. So David was involved in this same process. So we see uh, likewise Solomon doing it in a similar fashion like that. Now, let's turn over then to, or uh, rather not turn over, but go back to the 8th chapter of 1 Kings and go to the latter verses of the chapter in verses 62 through 65. 1 Kings 8, 62, 60 through 64, 65. And here is uh, the dedication, so to speak, after Solomon's prayer, which we've covered already. It says in verse 62, the ark is in the temple, Solomon's prayed, the dedication, the multitude of people is there and all of this. And it says, And Solomon offered a sacrifice of peace offering, which he offered unto the Lord 
two and twenty thousand oxen, and an hundred and twenty thousand sheep. So the king and all the children of Israel dedicated the house of the Lord. That same, the same day did the king hallow the middle of the court that was before the house of the Lord. For there he offered burnt offerings and meat offerings and the fat of the peace offerings because the brazen altar that was before the Lord was too little to receive the burnt offerings and meat offerings and the fat offerings of the peace offerings. And at that time Solomon held a feast and all Israel with him a great congregation from the entering in of Hamath under the river of Egypt before the Lord our God seven days and seven, seven days and seven days even 14 days, let's read the last verse, and on the eighth day, that is after the second set of seven days, he sent the people away and they blessed the king and went into their tents joyful and glad of heart for all the goodness that the Lord had done for David his servant and for his Israel his people. 220,000 oxen. That's a lot even if they were small oxen and 120,000 sheep. It didn't all happen on one day. It happened over this period of 14 days for this feast. Many of the things, of course, were sacrificed and burnt. Others were fed to the people. That was the normal thing under the Mosaic Law. But this mass of sacrifice is just not comprehensible to our minds. It, it just doesn't register. Considering, first of all, it was a very prosperous time they lived in for there even to be this many. And then to sacrifice this many and still have some, that's a great thing. That tells you something about Solomon's kingdom and prosperity. And then to supply, it tells us something about the multitude of people that, you know, these great number of people could be fed with these animals for 14 days and all. But I mean, this is serious business. It's really serious business. So, I hope you're overwhelmed, and it's not a mistake, the numbers here, at the great multitude of sacrifices that took place over this period of time revolving around the temple of the Lord and the ark being put there and the worship beginning where God's place was in Jerusalem in Israel. Just, again, it's, it's mind-boggling, mind-blowing, so to speak. One other reference we might give, as you remember Sunday school, if nothing else this morning, if you heard that or present, that again, we know there was such a thing as a Babylonian captivity. And after the Babylonian captivity, the children of Israel came back to the land after 70 years, and they rebuilt the temple. Well, let me give you a little reference there on that. In the book of Ezra chapter 6, after the temple was rebuilt, there was a similar dedication. Definitely not anywhere close to the magnitude of when Solomon built the temple here in the kingdom that was then. And not all the children of Israel come back from the captivity, etc., etc. So this was not nearly as big. But in Ezra chapter 6, verse 16 and 17, we're told there... And the children of Israel, the priests, the Levites, and the rest of the children of the captivity kept the dedication of the house of God with joy. And they offered at the dedication of this house of God an hundred bullocks, two hundred rams, four hundred lambs for a sin offering for all Israel, twelve he goats according to the number of the tribes of Israel. 
That in itself is overwhelming and that doesn't even scratch the surface of what was offered in the 14 days of Solomon. My mind just reels because I think of the logistics having been involved in this. I mean, you know, bottom line, some of you know here, I'll use this as an illustration because this church is familiar with, we've had a number of animals at times and we've all got together to butcher and process maybe anywhere from 12 to 15, I think the highest number was 17 deer. It took us several days being very meticulous about what we were doing to process those number of deer. That, that again, that's not even close. So you had to have a lot of people, a lot of means to, to do this kind of thing. But they did. Sacrifices and sacrifices unto the Lord. Well again, think just for a moment before I press on. How many animals... Do you suppose before Solomon did this had been sacrificed under the Mosaic? No tell. No tell. How many were sacrificed after this? How many were being sacrificed when Christ came? And I'm bringing you to this point. And yet not the sacrifice of any one of them nor the sacrifice of every single one of them put together ever atoned for one sin of anybody. Let, just let that soak in for a moment. Again, we don't comprehend it. But the point to be made is, again, all those sacrifices were what? Similitudes. They were a picture of. They did not do what he who was to come would do, but were repetitious pictures over and over and over again and even down to every day to a day. And the fact that they had to be repeated day in, day out, year in, year out, tells us that they were insufficient. A greater than Solomon made a sacrifice. It was not over 14 days. It wasn't hundreds of thousands of animals. The book of Hebrews tells us very simply in, verse, in chapter 9, what it was, and if what we've just been talking about over here takes your breath away, then this will really take it away. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11. But Christ being come and high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, and i got to pause again, what is the writer of Hebrews talking about? He's talking a symbol to. If you don't know about the old Mosaic economy, about the laws, the tabernacle, the priesthood, the sacrifices, you cannot begin to appreciate our great high priest and his sacrifice. I mean, we're talking about quantity for quantity, quality for quality. 
Repetition one time. That's what we're talking about. This is what he's saying. I mean, you get it? And again, remember the key word for understanding the book of Hebrews is, and it shows up seven times if I remember correctly in the book, better. Better. That was all good. It was good for them to be obedient to it. They placed their faith in the picture and representation of what those sacrifices did. But none of that blood ever washed away or covered one sin. But Christ, and that's the key thing, but Christ, they were pictures of, pointed to, showed the people day in, day out. Something better than this is needed. Because if we have to do this every day, when's going to be the end of it? There was an end to it. It was when our great high priest said, it's finished. And the veil of the temple was rent. No more sacrifices. We don't need the picture, the type, the shadow, the similitude anymore. The real thing, let's read it and rejoice. Neither by the blood of goats and calves. Again, incomprehensible the quantity. Incomprehensible the gallons of blood. How much firewood to fuel the fires to burn that many animals over centuries. But by His own blood, He entered in once within the, into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies to the purifying of the flesh, how much more, see the comparative resemblance, the comparison, how much more? What Jesus say? a greater than Solomon. It's all about comparing and see the greater. How much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Christ made the greatest sacrifice that ever has been made, that ever will be made. That's why we say when Christ died at Calvary, it was the epic event of all human history and shall forever be. There was no day like that day. There will never be a day like that day. The first day of creation doesn't compare with that day. Creation was for and leading up to that day. Everything before that looked to that day and that event and that sacrifice. Everything since that day, that sacrifice and that event looks back to it. It's the greatest thing that's ever happened. It's the greatest sacrifice that's ever been made. When the Son of God, incarnate in human flesh, laid down His life voluntarily. Nobody took his life. Was he murdered? Yes, at human hands. But the sacrifice that he made 
was of his own will and volition. And as he said himself before he did it, no man taketh my life. I not only will lay it down for my sheep, but after I've laid it down, I'll take it up again. Christ, one time, one day, never to be repeated, offered a sacrifice of Himself as the pure, sinless Lamb of God. And the shedding of His blood did more than all the blood put together of everything that had ever come before and since. We sang it this morning. Are you washed in the blood? I believe that was the song. Only the blood of Christ remits sin. That's it. One time, never to be repeated. People before this happened looked at those animal sacrifices and again looked for the time when it would end when one sacrifice would be made. And they didn't understand all that was to be. But they put their faith in what God showed them and what God told them and they believed God. And that's salvation. Any way you want to cut it. And when Christ came and offered that sacrifice and that veil of the temple was rent, it was saying, no need to do that anymore. Because that which is promised has been done. And we'll talk more about that in just a moment. But again, compare the two. The great sacrifices that Solomon as an earthly king made, the one sacrifice that Christ as king yet in human flesh made that has washed away the sins of all of the elect, all that were given to him. Well, kind of on that same line, I want to read a verse of Scripture speaking of the majesty of Solomon that kind of sums this up. First Chronicles chapter 29, and of course Chronicles is just that, Chronicles the books of Kings. And in First Chronicles 29, last chapter of that book, verse 23 and 25, in fact the latter of this book really sums up uh, everything we've been studying. And it doesn't go into the details here of the time frame. In fact, just notice verse 23, 1 Chronicles 29. Then Solomon sat on the throne of the Lord uh, as king instead of David his father and prospered and all Israel obeyed him. Okay, that covers a bunch of territory that we've been studying in Kings, right? So it just sums it all up there. And we know what all took place for David to, you know, for Solomon to become king. His brother tried to usurp him and... All of that stuff, right? But it's just summed up right there. Notice this. So it all came to pass. We covered that. Verse 24. And all the princes and the mighty men and all the sons likewise of the king David submitted themselves unto Solomon the king. That's noteworthy, isn't it? Because everybody's going to submit to our king one of these days too. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Even the demons. And the Lord, get this. Verse 25 is what I want you to really take in and chew on now. And the Lord magnified Solomon exceedingly in the sight of all Israel and bestowed upon him such royal majesty as had not been on any king before him in Israel. 
Now we already know how God magnified Solomon by literally giving him wisdom that's beyond human comprehension. Alright? But here, as king, he magnified him in the sight of everyone. Just like we read the Queen of Sheba. I mean, she came and it was beyond anything she had imagined. To the point, she says, now that I've seen it, what I just heard about, I mean, she, she just was ready to give up life. I mean, there was no spirit in her. Literally, we'll get to that when we study her. But again, I mean, she was just zapped. She was overwhelmed. She stood in awe. She was spellbound. She's, you know, <laughs> no life left in that regard. That's over Solomon. That's, that's over an earthly king. What do you think it's going to be like to be in the presence of the majesty on high? Here again, notice, read it with me and try to grasp what's being said. Bestowed upon him such royal majesty as had not been on any king before him in Israel. And let me also add there wouldn't be any after him either because it just got worse after Solomon. And I want to make a quick comment here, lest I don't make it at all. And that is, again, Solomon's greatness was not anything to do with Solomon. It was all to do with God. Men didn't bestow that wisdom, understanding, and magnification, and royal majesty upon him. That's not what made him great. Read it. God bestowed upon him. And let me say to you again, this is where greatness comes from, is God's bestowal. And I say that today because if you're a child of God, God has bestowed His grace upon you. You are what you are by His grace. And let me say, there's nothing you could be any greater than to be His child, His redeemed. Greatness is bestowed of God. It's not earned. It's not worked for. You can labor and you can work and it can all come up to a big goose egg. But if God's going to bestow something on somebody from heaven, they ain't a, they ain't, all hell on earth can't stop it. And again, what, what, what are we talking about here? Again, we, I think most of us, we haven't seen it. We haven't been in the presence of it. So we, it really doesn't soak in to the common person about what it's like to be in the presence of majesty. I don't. And if I was in the presence of our leaders in Washington, the president, what have you, we still wouldn't know. Because that's all human. God didn't make any of them kings or queens or anybody like that. He didn't give them the offices they hold directly like He did Solomon or what have That's earthly majesty. We got heavenly majesty here. Heavenly majesty on earth. Royal majesty. Well... 
Don't feel alone in it because guess what? Till these people saw it in the days of Solomon, nobody else had ever seen anything like it either. And one day we'll see it greater than this. But again, it's just breathtaking, is it not, to try to comprehend in your mind what it was like to have been in the presence of this man and his kingdom his wisdom, his greatness, and it was all because God had reached out and literally touched and anointed this man in a way more unique than any other human being ever had been. And yet Jesus' words were what? A greater than Solomon is here. Let's go back to the book of Hebrews and focus on that for the remainder of our time. Let's begin kind of chronologically starting with the first chapter in verse 3. Who, verse 3, drawing our subject from verse 2, the Son, Jesus, who being the brightness of His, of God's glory, and the express image of His person, already we're talking way above Solomon, right? Right? And upholding all things by the word of his power. Okay, keep running it through your mind just like a broken record, a greater than Solomon, a greater than Solomon, a greater than Solomon. Solomon upheld the kingdom by his wisdom. Christ has been upholding the creation ever since it's been created. You got it? Again, in order to appreciate it, you've got to compare. You've got to look at the one and see how Christ is superior. Christ upholds all things by the word of His power. Always has. And yet He made the greatest sacrifice that's ever been made. When He had by Himself, and again we stress, by Himself. All by Himself. That's where we get grace and grace alone. Nothing added to it. Christ did it all. We sang the song. He paid it all. And He paid it all by Himself. Purged our sins. He didn't try to. He did it. He came to do a work and He completed that work. What did He do? sat down on the right hand of the, and notice capital, majesty on high. If we're going to talk about majesty, real majesty, we've got to talk about God. The majesty down here on earth is a little M. The majesty on high is capital M. Majesty came from on high and took the form of even less than a little M on this earth. When in reality, majesty was within the God-man. But after that great and wonderful sacrifice, where did he go? Back to his majestic place. Eighth chapter, verse 1. I just got to read them and quit. Now the things which we have spoken, this is the Son. We have such an high priest 
who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. And again, he goes into the comparative resemblance of that high priest with the Old Testament high priest. Let's jump to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and here it is, but were eyewitnesses of His majesty. Again, the majesty on high condescended and took the form of a servant, but He was still the majesty on high as He was deity, the Son of God on earth. It was just enrobed in human flesh. But that majesty could be seen when the miracles were performed and when He spoke and taught. That's why they said, and every man spoke like this. Well, it was majesty speaking. It was He who created the worlds. It was He who was upholding all things by the word of His power, even as He gave His own life. Peter says this. John says this. Eyewitnesses. John says we handled the word of life. You know, we touched Him. We ate with Him. We drank with Him. We slept with Him. We heard Him. The majesty. Again, that, that word's just kind of foreign to us, isn't it? I don't have majesty. I don't live in majesty. I'm not around majesty. Except in the spiritual sense that He's my Lord. He's my Savior. And I believe... And by faith, embrace His majesty. And then a few pages over to the little book of Jude. Jude refers to His majesty also in the last verse of that little book. Verse 24, Now unto Him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of His glory with exceeding joy to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty and dominion and power both now and forever. Amen. And we say amen to that. Let me just put it to you like this. In heaven and for eternity, we're not going to be walking around talking about how great Solomon was. We're not going to be talking about how great those sacrifices was. We're not going to be talking about the royal majesty that Solomon had. You know why? Because it's been superseded. We have something better. We have something greater. We have something more glorious to where that those things really just literally become the shadow. And who wants to deal with a shadow when you have the real thing? And I say to you again, please get this, child of God, and understand it. The Old Testament were those types and shadows, but if you are looking at a shadow in the sun and you don't know where it's coming from, just, just start following it. Guess where you're going to end up? You're going to end up at the source. These things of the Old Testament bring us right up to Matthew's Gospel chapter 1 and verse 1. The shadows, the types, the similitudes bring us to Christ who said, I repeat, a greater than Solomon is here. Again, I think, as you I'm sure have thought, what it would have been like
to being in the presence of the majesty of Christ, even when He was a man here on this earth. Those that did were truly honored and blessed, were they not? To be entitled to see that, to witness that, to handle the Son of God, the Son of Man, the God-Man, in that brief, little brief tenure that He occupied space and time on this earth. But He made a sacrifice that is incomparable, beyond comprehension. We cannot understand the fullness of it, but by faith, we can embrace the simplicity of it to the saving of our souls. Just what the writer of Hebrews said, Christ offered Himself once by His own blood And in so doing, I can say today by faith, He purged my sins, every one of them. And today I can declare to others, He's alive and well and sitting on the right hand of the majesty on high, which means that sacrifice was acceptable not just to Himself, but to God the Father. And that's the Christ that we we proclaim today. And we can't wait until we see that majesty Revealed once again in a way in a way greater than Peter, James, and John just got to briefly through a keyhole on the Mount of Transfiguration, saw that robe, that curtain pulled back, and in transfiguration they saw the majesty. Just just how long? Maybe a few minutes. Folks, we're going to be in the presence of that majesty forever and ever. And no end to it because of that great and wonderful sacrifice. I hope you know what that sacrifice is today. If you do not, Christ this day can be your Lord and your Savior by putting your faith and trust in Him for purging your sins by His blood. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you have not done that, we pray God may give you the strength and the grace to do so today. God bless this to your hearing.